Thank you. Oh, it's so great to be with you, and great to see such a full, uh, a full auditorium. Uh, what a great bunch, what a great crowd. Lovely to see you. I can hardly believe that a year has gone by since Terry and I were here, and it's so great to come back again and kind of feel absorbed back into your lovely church family. I love it. Um, actually, uh, just before we begin, I felt during the worship, is there, a, is there a lady here called Jill? I don't know if there might be somebody called Jill. I may not have got this right. But I felt I saw somebody who's got a very creative gift. Uh, she likes to sew, she likes to make things, but you've lately got very discouraged. Now, maybe it's not Jill, but somebody here is feeling very discouraged and feeling that, uh, where is this going? Where's this sewing going? Where <laughs> sewing going? Um, and feeling maybe it's not going anywhere. But you know what came to mind was that story of the lady called Lydia. No, not Lydia. No, Dorcas. Dorcas. Well, she had a great sewing gift, and it was such a blessing to the church. And uh, unfortunately, she died. I'm not saying you're going to die. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the church was distraught. And they sent for the apostle, Peter, and he raised her from the dead. They couldn't do without this lady's creative gift. So don't you put down your creative gift. And I feel if you are feeling very discouraged about it, God is going to resurrect this gift and give you a, a fresh kind of a, a refreshing of your gift. So I don't know who this applies to. I hope somebody is getting this. It's kind of like uh, going out on a limb here. But all right, let's, uh, let's move into the word because we are going to look at the word. And um, a few years ago, I was reading. No, I wasn't. I was praying. Uh, get this right. Yeah. I was praying. I do sometimes. And um, <laughs> I was praying for the young women in our church. And I, I was thinking, how can I help them? How can I bring some kind of discipling mode? Or well, I didn't know what to do. But I knew that people were struggling. They needed teaching. Uh, Terry was away. And I woke up in the middle of the night and right in front of my eyes was this reference, Titus chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. So I didn't know what it was, so I turned on the light and read this. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to wine, but to teach what is good. And then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, busy at home, to be kind and subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. So let's just put this in context, shall we? Let's just think about this church. Uh, where is it? It's on the island of Crete. And uh, Paul was uh, um, on his very last journey, and he went from Jerusalem to Rome, passed by the Isle of Crete, landed on it briefly, and then the, the ship took off and uh, against his advice, because he'd heard from God that uh, there was going to be a, a storm. Sure enough, there was a storm, and they were shipwrecked on the island of Malta. But before they were shipwrecked, they spent a few days on the island of Crete. And I assume that that's where the church began, because Paul now writes to Titus, and he says this, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished 
So I can imagine that Paul, wherever he went, he preached the gospel, didn't he? So even though he was on his way to Rome, and at this point he was a prisoner, I imagine that when he got off at Crete and they had to take on fresh water and food and so forth, he took the opportunity to preach the gospel. People got saved, and he left Titus behind to begin to form a church and to appoint elders, and it says to straighten out what was left unfinished. Well, a bit of a challenge, that, don't you think? And um, what, was, what was it like then on this island of Crete? Well, as you go on, you find that the people there were rather unsettled and confused. And why was this? Well, if you read in the, in the first chapter of Titus, it's a very short little short little epistle. It says that some people had been coming. There are many rebellious people, people, mere talkers and deceivers. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by their erroneous teaching. So he's pretty forthright about this. He is saying that there are people who are confused by teachers coming in and bringing confusing teaching. So that was one of the things. Then the next thing that uh, was going on was that the, the, the people of Crete had a rather bad reputation. And uh, he says, even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. This is true, says Paul. <laughs> so he doesn't mince his words, does he? He doesn't mind being pretty rude. And uh, he's, so he is saying that not only is false teaching coming in, which is unsettling the saints, because they are getting all unsettled, that people are, people are coming in and teaching legalistic doctrines and unset, uh, unsettling them all, but they've got their own kind of culture to militate against, uh, militating against them their own reputation on the island. They're sort of, these people, they're, well, they evil brutes. What's an evil brute? Liars, gluttons, pretty unsavory bunch. So this church has got to kind of begin to go against the culture and establish something wholesome and pure in the midst of this. And uh, so this is... Um, we, we may not have to contend against people being evil brutes, and maybe you do, but we all have to uh, go against the prevailing culture where we live, don't we? Because all around us there's a mindset that is opposed to the word of God. And this is what the church does. It's to be salt and light. It's to be standing up against that prevailing culture, not just going with the flow, but standing against it. And we'll see a little bit more of that in a minute. Then the next thing that he has to contend with, because Titus has got to deal with all this stuff, he says in chapter 2, he says, likewise, teach, uh, in, uh, where, where are we? Yeah, teach the old men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith. So evidently, he's got a lot of intemperate old men. And in his congregation, they, maybe they're just, maybe these are the ones who used to be evil brutes. <laughs> now maybe they've got saved, but they haven't changed much. And they're still kind of lying around and being lazy and intemperate, which means they're drunk most of the time. And um, 
They are not self-controlled, but Paul is not content to leave them like that. He says, come on, Titus, you've got to teach them. You've got to teach them to change, to be different. And then he has also a word for the older women, which we just read. Teach the older women. Now, what were these older women like? I can just imagine, can't you? The sun in the Med Mediterranean island, it's all kind of que sera, sera. You know, life is easy, life is, you know, lie around in the sun, spend your afternoons gossiping and drink, drinking wine. And um, so these older women, they, they're gossipy lot. It says they're slanderers and addicted to wine. <laughs> so, so again, Paul is saying, hey, that's not good enough. Things have got to change here. And then we find, he says, encourage the younger men to be self-controlled. I mean, Paul is pretty thorough. He's got a word for every category in this, in this church. Old men, old women, young women need to be trained. The young men need to be disciplined. And, uh, and he also says to Titus, you need to appoint elders. So there's a, a lot of work for Titus to do here. And, and let's now go back to these women, because that is particularly uh, kind of relevant to us, isn't it? Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live. And uh, he, what he is saying is, you've got to learn to respect one another and those over you in God. He expands on this in other epistles. He talks about respecting those over you in God, giving them uh, not, not servile kind of fear, but re respecting that people have been appointed to lead the church of God who are their shepherds for their safety, and they need to give them respect. And Paul is saying that as they learn to be reverent in the way they live and not spend their afternoons gossiping and drinking but begin to find out who they are in God, they will find a calling. And what is this calling? To teach what is good so that they can train the younger women. So can you see there's a lovely meshing together here. There's older women who've got a calling in God. There's younger women who need to be trained so that they can exercise their calling in God. So... What are they to teach? Well, not doctrine. Earlier on in this epistle, Paul has said, I want you to appoint elders as I directed you. And he has some uh, things that define the elders, but it is the elders who teach the doctrine. It's the elders who teach people all about, well, we need to know who... We need to know who God is. We need to know about God. We need to know about man, how he is created, how he fell. We need to know about sin. We need to know about salvation. We need to know about justification by faith. We need to know about sanctification. All of these big words. Thank goodness the elders teach that. <laughs> and, you know, I think that that is why in 1 Timothy, the, the passage that people hate so much because it says, let the women be silent in church. <laughs> Actually, we know that Paul is not saying that the women have got nothing to say, because in other areas of the epistles, he's saying, 
let those women who prophesy behave in a certain way. And if you pray or prophesy, make sure that it's under covering. And so he's not saying women have got nothing to say or no role to play. And we're seeing here that women have got a role to play. But it's the elders who teach the foundational stuff. They teach the doctrine. But then, on top of that, when the doctrine is laid down, then we can begin the superstructure of learning how to build on that doctrine. And you find in all of the epistles that that is how Paul writes, and Peter, and John, first of all, they talk about Jesus, they talk about what he's done, they talk about the gospel, they talk about Jesus being um, the, the, the cornerstone, being the one that we build on. And then they say, in view of this, this is how you are to behave. So can you see that the way we conduct ourselves, the way we behave, it's informed by what we believe. And it is so important that we get it that way round. And so often as women, we don't like that. And we like to talk about the way we behave, the way we conduct ourselves. It's down to the prevailing culture. It's down to the way we've been brought up. It's down to our feelings at the moment, our emotions. It's down to what so-and-so says and that one says in the latest book on self-help and what the television program says. And then we think, Oh, isn't it great? I've become a Christian. I believe Jesus has saved me. It's supposed to be the other way around, girls. We are to learn about who God is, what his requirements are, what happened when men fell into sin, and how that has spoilt the whole of creation, and how Jesus has come to redeem us and to change us and to change our hearts and transform us. And that it's his blood that cleanses us from sin. We need to know about the doctrines of salvation, the cross, resurrection, what all of this, um, as it, it all beautifully dovetails in the Bible. Then we learn how to live in view of these things. This is how you should live. That's what Paul and Peter and John and all of the epistles, all of the New Testament are saying. And so it's very important that we know the word of God so that we can learn how to live lives that please Jesus and our godly lives need to have our, our hearts changed. So what sort of things were these older women who are now not going to spend their whole afternoons gossiping and boozing? <laughs> they are going to teach what is good. And they are going to teach these things. To train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, to be pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands. Wow. In other words, really, it's about everyday life. That's what they're talking about. Not, not highfalutin stuff, but how do you conduct your marriage? How do you conduct your home how do you raise your kids? What it, is your character being changed from being an impure person to a pure person? Are you, um, and then it says being busy at home. I don't think that means necessarily you spend your whole time 
rushing around your home, but it means that you prioritize on certain things and you recognize that these things have a place in the Christian life. So, you know, I, I counted the verses in Titus, and this is the central verse. <laughs> and uh, I want us to see that all of those things that these, these uh, elder women are supposed to teach, the younger ones, are for a purpose, and it all comes together at the end of verse 5. There's a reason there to live like this. So that the word of God will not be maligned. That's the reason. It's not just that, oh, you'll have a happy marriage. It's not just that your home will be full of calm and peace, that all your teenagers will be amazing. <laughs> that uh, It's not just that, you know, everything will go right for you. No. There's, we are to live in a certain way because it honors the word of God. Now, what are other words for malign. I don't use the word malign very much. Do you ever use that word? Malign. What's malign? <laughs> malign. Well, anybody want to shout out? What does malign mean? If, sorry? Faith. 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 Sorry. Yeah, well, um, sorry. I'm not, I didn't put, say this very clearly. What, what do you, what's a synonym for malign? Yes, dishonor. Disrespect? Yeah, disrespect, despise, maybe. Those sorts of words. Contempt. I'm sorry, I'm sure you said that. I just couldn't hear very well. <laughs> um, disrespect, contempt, not esteem. It's not a priority. It's kind of marginalized. You know, we can do that with the word of God. We can be Christians. We can be even coming and worshiping God and thanking him, but not really honoring the word of God. And even worse, if we don't honor the word of God, then other people will malign the word of God, people who are not Christians, because they'll say, ah, those Christians, they believe in Jesus, but they're no different to us. So how do you dishonor the word of God? How do you dishonor? Well, I think, first thing is you argue with it. You think, huh, I don't like that. that I, remember, I remember there was um, a young woman. I lived in a town called Brighton in the south of England. And um, a lovely young woman got saved right out of the world, no Christian background at all. She was a great singer, actually, and she's, her name was Kate Simmons, and she's since written some wonderful songs. Christian worship songs. And uh, I remember her coming to me once um, and saying, she was very troubled. She said, Wendy, I've been reading through the New Testament. She's only been saved, you know, a matter of a few months. And she got as far as 1 Corinthians 14. And she said, I, I just feel so bad. I got to 1 Corinthians 14 and I, I got so angry with what it said. And so, it, 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 of course, you probably know that 1 Corinthians 14, it talks about um, the way that women should pray or prophesy. And um, uh, anyway, it, 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 there are certain, certain provisos for women. And she didn't like it at all. But what shocked her was 
was her reaction. She said, I got really angry. She said, but I'm a Christian. And I said, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so why are you angry? Because to be submissive to the word of God is not natural. It's not natural for us to submit to anybody. It's totally unnatural. We all want to woof, state our opinion, don't we? Even if you are a, 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 a quiet little mouse, even if you're an introvert, you have opinions. <laughs> and sometimes the most manipulative people are the quietest ones. <laughs> and people like me who are extroverts, they just shout. <laughs> Neither of them is very pleasant. But we can be, we can get angry with the word of God because it goes against the, the fleshly human desires that we have. We want to plant our flag and declare our opinion and do things our way. I remember when we first got married, Terry and I, very different people. He's very moderate, tem uh, temperamentally, he's kind of placid. He's a very happy man. He's a very easygoing, loving man. And I'm much more like a rocket. I go, shoot off at things, and I've had to learn to shoot a little bit lower. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I, I, I'm the eldest of four girls, so I was not very used to being around men anyway. And um, when he started doing things in a different way that I thought should be done, we soon began to have some disagreements and fallings out. And you know, time after time, I have had to remember that when on my wedding day I stood before God and before the people and I vowed to honor and love and obey my husband. Now you see, sometimes the word of God, it's our plumb line. It holds us. It holds us in when we would have gone all over the place. It brings us back to the center. And I remember that there were times when I thought, but I, this was not my personal preference, but I vowed before God that I would do this. I did not want to submit to my husband. But you know, that, and, and it doesn't happen very often that we fell out. And you know, we've been together 51 and a half years now. <laughs> And we rub along pretty well, I have to say. You know, we know love and we love each other more and more. I say that as the absolute truth. After 50 years, we're still learning about each other and loving each other and are so grateful to God for each other. And God has made us one. But it, you know, it takes time for that, girls. It does not happen on your wedding day, right? <laughs> You might be joined physically. I do hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> I did. <laughs> but you know, God wants us not only to be joined physically and frequently. <laughs> he, wa <laughs> he wants us to be joined in heart and soul, in purpose. And, and to be together on the same page in all sorts of decision-making. And it's the Word of God that helps us to do that. So the Word of God, how do we dishonor it? We talked about that. You can argue with it. You can think you know better. 
And I think that often is the case too. You read the Word of God and mentally you are, you are kind of uh, qualifying it and moderating it and say, well, it can't actually mean that really. It means this. And we dilute it. And you know, the Word of God is usually pretty clear and not very complicated about what you should and should not do. But we make it complicated because we don't want to believe it. So we kind of trim the edges, we dilute it, we think, no, I can't really mean that. What kind of, I should have written down an example of that, shouldn't I? Mm, should have done. Um, but I think you can probably find an example in your own life of areas where you think, I know I should have done that, but I kind of fudged it because we don't really want to be wholehearted. We can, in other words, compromise it. We can marginalize it. We can outright disagree with it. And you know, that's very dangerous because if we start to disagree with the word of God, what do we put in its place? We put our opinions, our preferences, in the place of the Word of God. And that is so dangerous because we are left then hanging out to dry, very vulnerable. Because the Word of God guards our hearts. If you look in Psalm 119, the longest psalm in the Bible, it's all about the Word of God. And David saying he loves the law of God. He uses words like law and uh, different words, but what he's talking about is the word of God, what God has said. And he says, hide God's word in your heart that you might not sin. If you're hiding that word in your heart, you're not so likely to go off the rails. If you don't hide God's word in your heart, you will go all over the place. So it's for our safety. So... And also, as I said just now, if we don't live according to God's word, people will see Christian women not doing these things, not loving their husbands, not loving their children, not living very pure lives, not uh, their homes are shambles, getting angry with one another. And they all say, well, those churchgoers, they're no different to us. But we're supposed to be salt and light. We are supposed to stand out. We're supposed to go against the tide. And that is often hard, but it's safe. So what happens if we honor the word then? You have to let it rule your life. You have to submit to the word of God. Now let's just look in Psalm 19 if you have a Bible. Oh, come with me. Why did I do that? Things you find. Yeah. I'm not about to comb my hair right now. Okay. I don't know. Anyway. Right. Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, more precious than much gold, and sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. By them, your servant is warned 
and in keeping them is great reward. And so David here, who wrote this psalm, is extolling the fact that God speaks, and when God speaks, it's good, it's perfect, it's trustworthy, it gives light to us. How we need that, don't we? It gives, uh, it gives us, um, it makes us righteous if we walk in his ways. And so we need to be persuaded. Are you persuaded that the word of God is good, it's trustworthy, it's precious, that you, you value the word of God, you hold on to it, that you use it for making decisions? Now, I have found again and again, when we have had to make decisions, it is so much simpler if you simply say, God says so-and-so, job done. Now, I know that sounds very simplistic, and often there's all sorts of ramifications, but you know, once you have settled it in your heart that we are going God's way, then God makes the way straight before your face. That's what he says. Let the words of my, uh, of my heart, uh, it talks about make your path straight before my face. And he does do that. If we say, Lord, you show us your way, then when we take that step into that piece of light, it says, in your light, we see light. So you step into that patch of light, and then you see the next piece of light, and the next one, and your way is straight. If you stand back here and you think, hmm, I don't like the look of that, God, I think I'll go around here, and then you go around there, and, and then before you know where you are, you've got in a muddle. But if God says, do this, if God says, give so-and-so, give so much money away, if God says, go to that country, if God says, you are to go and church plant over there, if God says, go and speak to that neighbor, if God says, don't marry that guy, then don't. You know, it's for your good. It's not because God is cruel. It's because he's loving. And he knows that two can't walk together unless they are agreed. Common sense, really. But you know, the enemy creeps up on us and he says, God is so unkind. He knows, you know, that guy is so right for you. How, why would you not want to marry him? And he twists and he perverts the word of God. And then we get into a muddle. And only last week, I'm in a, in a, um, a house with some of, my, two, uh, some of my young women friends in the church where I am. One of them is just crying because she married a non-Christian. She loves him so much but it's hard because he's pulling in the other direction. And uh, she knew when she married him, it was not a good idea. But you know, God is merciful and compassionate and we pray that her husband will be saved because God does, doesn't want him to perish. God wants him to be saved. But you know, it's gonna be tough on the journey. We need to believe and trust that what God says is good and perfect. So do we believe this? Do we, I've, I've been recently going through the Sermon on the Mount and I've been using a commentary written by a man called John Stott who was a very uh, well-known theologian in, in England in the previous 
century. <laughs> and uh, I found it very challenging. You know, people think that the Sermon on the Mount is so nice. It's all about love. <laughs> but when you see what that love is, this is not just uh, a nice sermon. This is about being laying your life down and being totally different. Loving your enemies, doing good to those who hate you, blessing those who curse you. This is what the word of God says. Do we want to do that? No, we don't. But you know, that's the way to go if we're going to find peace and, and joy. So do we believe this? Do we believe that God's word enlightens, purifies us? It's sweeter than honey. Do we eat it? No, Jeremiah, I think it was, God's, God gave him his word and he said, eat it, take it down into yourself. That's what we should do, get nourished by that word so that it makes us strong. It's more precious than gold. By it we are warned, protected, guarded and enriched. So do we believe this? Now one of those things that these women were, were told the older women were to teach the younger women to love their husbands. You think, well, of course you would. I mean, doesn't everybody love their husband? Apparently not. You have to be taught how to love your husband according to the way God says love is. Now, this is going to change from couple to couple, but you need to explore together how you love one another and how you love God. And I'm so grateful for a husband who puts God first and teaches me how to love God. And I know he's grateful to have a wife who loves God. And you know, that's a strong marriage because both of you want to please God. And then you find that the love of God is, is what comes and enriches your human love. What about training your children? Well, you know, there are ways to do that. And the, the way, way of the world is, well, let them find out on their own. That's not loving your children. Because children need boundaries. They need to be told whether it's safe to do so and so. And I mean, you wouldn't just let kids just dash across the road without telling them how to, how to cross a road safely. And so we must not let our children just be like brambles who just, that kind of just grow all over the place. They have to be pruned back so that they can be fruitful. So much more can say about that. But I know that I found praying out what God says about children was what helped me so much in training our children. And in the Psalms, there's lots of Psalms about children. There's lots about children in the book of Proverbs loads of things in the book, book of Proverbs, quite worrying at times. <laughs> but um, for example, I found in Psalm 127, it says that children are a gift from God. Now there are times when you may think, I didn't really want that gift. I would rather, <laughs> we don't view them as a gift. That's the very moment you should think, God help me with this gift because I, at the moment, I wish you had kept him in a box. <laughs> but uh, they are a gift. They are to be like arrows. Did you know that? 
I prayed for my children to be like arrows that God would shoot out to do maximum damage in the heart of the enemy's territory. And they are doing that. Hallelujah. I am grateful to God. There is an, another verse that says, This is how it will be for the man who fears God. His children will be mighty in the land. I don't think that means that they're going to be Mr. Universe. I don't think it's talking about physical strength. It's talking about people who are confident and clear. They have opinions that they stand. They're not going to be pushed around. They've got their feet firmly on the foundation of the word of God. They are influencers, not being influenced. And you know, that's a thing you can pray for your children and for the children of the church, that they will grow up to be mighty in God's kingdom. Let's do it, girls. Let's do it. They are to love their husbands and children, be self-controlled. Uh, in this day and age, how we need to know that. You know, every time you turn on the television, you open a magazine or a paper to switch on your phones, what leaps out is not pure. And we, we get... We get kind of immune, don't we? we? We begin to get so we're not shocked anymore. It's just everywhere. But we are, as we've already said, to be salt and light. We have to be women who are declaring something different, going against the tide. Being self-controlled, pure. Busy at home, I think, means being persuaded of the importance of your home. And I, I know that most of you need to be and want to be and rightly go out to work outside of your homes. This is the way life is. But at the same time, let's make sure we are guarding our homes that it, it is a priority, that our homes are not just shambolic places that people dash in and out and grab a sandwich and dash off again. But you know, what is a home? If you, if you again search through Proverbs, and other places in the Bible, you will find that home is a very strong thing. You know, that it's family is something that God invented, not just as a biological accident. It's not a sociological experiment. It's not some bright idea that somebody had. God invented family. Comes out the heart of God. And it's because through every family relationship, God can show something of himself. So that fathers, being godly fathers, is modeling something of God. Being a godly mother is showing something of what God is like. Being a godly brother or sister, showing love to one another, standing with each other, loyalty, helping one another. Being a son to a father modeled on Jesus the way he was a son to the father. All these family relationships are important because it's an opportunity for God to be seen. Now, our time is going. I just want to quickly tell you about uh, a family that is very dear to me. My eldest son and his wife uh, went to live 10 years ago in a neighborhood in the East End of London. It's a very poor neighborhood. I won't uh, bore you with how they got there, but anyway, we believe God wanted them there. And um, it's, Bangla it's all Bangladeshi Muslims where they live. 
And I think their hearts were a bit stunned at first when they arrived, but they thought, no, this is where God wants us. So they set themselves to begin to reach out. This took a long time because the people around them were very suspicious of this white family that had come to live amongst all of these brown Asians. And um, my son and his wife, they have six children. And uh, the behind each, they live in a row of houses that all join together. And behind these houses, there, there are a garden areas which is open. Everybody can see what's going on. So each, each, um, each house has its own little patch, but it's all open to everybody, everybody can see. So my son, it's got a tiny little patch. So what did he do? He got a trampoline. And he put it in the garden, and all of the six kids are leaping up and down on it and enjoying themselves. All of these little Muslim children are pressing their faces to the fence and saying, Mommy, can I go and play with them? So gradually, that's what broke down, began to break down some of the barriers because um, they would, the, the adults wouldn't come into my family's house. And, and my daughter-in-law, who's very, very sociable and outgoing, she would knock on their doors and she'd take them food and they wouldn't let her in. But gradually, gradually, the, the barriers got broken down. And then they would start, these kids would start coming around and saying, um, can, can Ben mend my bike for me? Can Gilbert come out and play? And soon they were having football matches up and down the street. And now whenever I go, the front door is wide open, there's kids careering in and out, you never know who's going to be sitting down to a meal. I was looking after the children while the parents had a well-earned break a few months ago. And uh, I thought, yeah, there's six of the grandkids, there's me and there's the lodger. Okay, eight kids. So did the meal, sat down, eight people at the table. I suddenly thought, Where, where's Albany and Rufus? Oh, there's two other children here but I don't know where Albany and Ruth's are. So two other children had come in or eating their dinner. I don't know who they were. <laughs> so we had to quickly sort of take some of the food and off their plates and put it to other plates. But, um, but what I'm trying to say is the power of a Christian family. And the Ben and Rachel, they always have prayer times and read the Bible. So whoever comes in gets, gets involved. So they pray and read the Bible and teach their kids, and other kids are coming in and hearing it too. And now every Wednesday, Rachel has her kitchen full of women who are coming in. She's teaching them to cook, to sew. They share recipes, and she always has a slot. She says, now, today we're, having, we're going to talk about our faith. Um, what do you believe happens after death? She'll say, or something like that. There'll be a topic each week. And so she hears what they, what they believe, and then she shares what she believes. Walls are being broken down because of a Christian family. Be persuaded of the importance of your home and your family. Do not let the devil tell you this is a secondary thing. Do not let the devil tell you that your career is more important than your children getting the truth of God in their hearts. And if you are not a mum, if you are not married, if you don't have a home, then the church is your family. And your house group is where you work these things out. And it's where you get sheltered. It's where you receive nourishment. But it's also where you give as well as receive. 
So God wants us in families. It's the safest place when it's a godly family. Now, we're running out of time here. So I just want to finish this. Ultimately, why do we obey the word? Because Jesus is the word. So right from Genesis, I'm not going to go through all that. Genesis, John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And it goes on to explain how he came into the world. He is the ultimate expression of what God wants to say to us. So if you don't know if you can trust the Word of God, look at Jesus. Can you trust Jesus? If you don't know what the Word of God is like, if you doubt if the Word of God is good, look at Jesus. You can trust him. He is good and trustworthy. Let me just finish with um, there's a, a beautiful expression of this in Isaiah 55 where um, the prophet is, he says this, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word. It goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty. It will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out with joy and be led forth in peace. So that's a lovely picture of Jesus. He is the word that's gone out from the Father. He did not return to the Father empty-handed. Now in John 17, he says, And now, Father, I am coming to you and those that you have given me. He comes to the Father with the spoils of war that he has won. With us, his delight. And he accomplished, he said, it is finished. He accomplished the Father's purpose. He achieved the purpose for which he was sent. He is a beautiful, beautiful image of what God has said. He is the Word. So let's love the Word. Let's honor the Word. Let's obey the Word.